I'm Kier DeLay, the star of 2001. I play Dave Bowman. My name is Gary Lockwood. I became an actor uh, roughly in 1959, and I left California and New York to do this movie in 1965. And I finished the latter part of 66 and had, you know, months and months of unbelievably great times with Kubrick and, and the entire production staff. I was filming uh, in London a film called Bunny Lake is Missing, an Otto Preminger film with Laurence Olivier and Carol Lindley. And one day after work, I came home and my wife said, your agent called, call them. So I did. And my agent said, are you sitting down? I said, no. He said, you better sit down. So I did. And he said, you've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next film. <laughs> and I couldn't believe my, I couldn't believe my ears. I had been a Stanley Kubrick fan since I was in drama school. One afternoon I had the day off and I went down to the local movie theater to see a Kirk Douglas film. I always liked Kirk Douglas. A film called Paths of Glory and it blew me out of my seat. And I said, who directed this? Of course, I had never heard of Stanley Kubrick. But from there on in, through Lolita and Spartacus and Dr. Strangelove, I knew uh, this was a man that was a contender for being one of the great film directors of the 20th century. So when I was told I was getting <laughs> offered the lead in his next film, it was really something. At 16 years old, I grew up on a sort of a cattle ranch. I drove to um, town and I saw uh, Kubrick's The Killing. And I do remember it was the first time I ever walked out of a movie house and I stopped in the lobby. And I walked over and I looked at the poster and I looked down to see that it was written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. And I never forgot that name, ever. I never, ever forgot that name. And when he came out years later in 1956 with a um, movie called Paz of Glory, I woke up in September, I think of 1956 or seven, whatever year it was, and it was an unbelievable, hot, terrible day. And we were football practice at UCLA two times a day in intense heat. And I got up that morning and I looked, I had had a newspaper and I saw that Kubrick's Paz of Glory was playing on Hollywood Boulevard. And I went to the coaches and I told them that I had got, I had sustained a ticket and that I had to be in court in Santa Maria, California for trial. And I had to be there by noon. And the coaches were pissed off. I mean, they said, what are you talking about? I said, I can't come practice today. This is a training table at UCLA maybe September 4th or 5th, I don't recall. It was the middle of a horrible heat wave. And I walked out of there as a complete liar and uh, all I could think of was getting in that little car and driving to Hollywood Boulevard to see Stanley Kubrick's picture, Paz of Glory. I arrived there, I parked in the Grumman's Chinese parking lot and I walked across the street and saw Paz of Glory. And I remember they had a banner up above on the marquee of penguins sitting on ice uh, cubes or something. 
like, hey, it's air conditioned inside. And I saw the movie three times, Paz of Glory. And, and that was it. I mean, years later, when my agent called me and told me that Stanley Kubrick had uh, inquired about hiring me for 2001 A Space Odyssey, I said to my agent these words. I said, roughly speaking, how much do you think it will cost us? This, the Donna man, Kubrick, um, he went out, uh, sent people into Africa, and they made all kinds of plates, glass plates. You know, Stanley did not like to fly. He got a pilot license once in his life and decided he didn't want to ever, he, he realized what could go wrong. <laughs> and he never flew again. Neither flew himself nor was flown. He would take boats. He took as I did, I took to Queen Mary, he always took boats places. So he couldn't go to Africa physically. What he did, and this is before the days of cell phones, he had a second unit crew, still crew, they were still photographs. Look very carefully at the background, nothing really is moving, they are still shots. And he had a telephone connection with these guys in Africa, and he had a graph with one, two, three, four, five, six going up the left-hand side of the graph and A, B, C, D, E, F, G going off the top of the graph. And he was on a direct telephone connection with these still photographers, and he'd say, uh, okay, Joe, um, the mountain range should start, you've got it at 3B. Change it so now 4M. So the man would pan it. He said, okay. All right, that's it. And that is how he, um, he got the shots. For the most part, it was shot on the soundstage at, um, at MGM Borenwood. Uh, we also worked, well, I didn't work, but the company also worked at Pinewood Studio. Um, when I arrived in England to start the film, they were shooting at Pinewood at the time, and that was the excavation of the monolith that was later discovered on, on the moon. Now, the Dawn of Man, of course, was done much later in the year. I don't know the exact months, but that would have been well after I finished. A matter of months had gone by before he filmed it. These shots are an example of the plate glass photography that was done in Africa. And then, with the use of front projection, the animals, in this case, the man-apes and the, and the whatever the hell they are, hyena-type hyena animals, are, um, they're, they're live, they're on the regular stage, and the actors are in those ape outfits. They had a bunch of mimes. And these fellows did a great job. Ah! 
when the Donna Mann sequence came and and they, they're battling over, you know, who's supposed to be at the water hole and one group one fights off the other and force them to leave. For example, here you see uh, one of the man apes coming up, you know, to run the other ones off the water hole. And they're unable to do so. And they lose the battle. And later, uh, the... Uh, the alien force that that moves throughout the uh, solar system in this story, or throughout the, you know, whatever the whole planetary system, comes, and drops a monolith, and this one group that is defeated at the waterhole. Is exposed to the monolith, and uh, it alters his thinking, and so. See now he that the defenders of the waterhole run them off, and they're they're forced to. He who fights and runs away lives to fight another day, sort of thing. But when they come back, they really do some damage. <laughs> when I was sent the script before I started filming, I read it and thought to myself, something is, something is vaguely familiar here. And then it hit me. I'd been a science fiction fan quite early in my life. Uh, I, I think I discovered science fiction when I was 12 or 13. And I was a voracious consumer of science fiction magazines. My mother would give me the annual best science fiction collection of short stories each year. There would be one for 1951, 1952. And in one of those collections, I read a short story um, where the kernel of this film was in this short story. It was called The Sentinel. And it was by Arthur C. Clarke, published, I believe, originally in a British science fiction magazine in the late 1940s. Uh, I was reading it now about 1951 or 52. And it was this short story, The Sentinel, that dealt only with the aspect of Floyd uh, being called up to the moon to be shown this strange object. Uh, the monolith, and them coming to the conclusion that, in a sense, it was a buried burglar alarm that the passing intelligence millions of years in the past had left buried on the surface, knowing that they would be interested in those creatures which were looked like ape men to us, should they become developed enough to discover this monolith. And, of course, that ear-piercing signal at the end was the alarm, and that's that's the only part of uh, the film that the original short story dealt with, and that was the short story that also picked um, Stanley's interest. That was the genesis of the whole film. And Arthur Clarke was uh, uh, there uh, for the first few weeks that I worked with, and he was a lovely man. Now here they awaken and the monolith is there. And of course this started the quiz all over the country of what the hell was that great big black thing? And I, I used to travel and do autograph shows and talk about the film and I'd say, it was a, an allegory of extraterrestrial intelligence and nothing more, huge great block of wood painted black. But I thought it was a good choice on Kubrick and Clark's part, primarily Stanley, really. 
to just have, you know, the symbol of extraterrestrial intelligence rather than, say, create some sort of extraterrestrial being to look at. That's what screws up a lot of sci-fi, I think, is that different environments would create or give birth to different types of uh, physical creatures. So it's very hard to say what any living entity looks like uh, throughout the universe. I mean, they all may look like uh, Rock Hudson, you know, I don't know. Or Bella Lugosi. But when they come in contact with the monolith, the adventure begins, really. But I thought these fellows did a very good job. I mean, I'm not a mime, but, <laughs> you know, they sort of remind you of what you see when you go to the zoo. I mean, they kind of, they are very tentative, but finally he touches it. Haywood Floyd and, and that whole section, finding the monolith on the moon and the, the scientists uh, worrying about what it represents and then that last, the, the opening sequence, that was done in the last month or so of uh, 65. I left in December, but I have a feeling that I arrived in very, very early January of uh, at 66. There was a reasonable amount of footage that was edited out of this section that was in it originally. It didn't really change story or anything. Now, we're about to see one of the really incredible moments, I think, in movie history. I mean, that's in my opinion, of course, but here it's about to come when this man-ape pitches a bone there's a mechanical advantage as it hits another bone and ricochets. And he says, what the hell was that? And he cocks his head. And it's sort of like maybe man's first progressive thought. Something's going on inside there that wasn't there before. I think I most enjoy Stanley Kubrick over any director I've ever had because, candidly, he never said anything to me. I don't remember one word of direction. A director speaking to you and, quote, directing you every moment isn't necessarily the sign of a good director. I don't remember, in that sense, a lot of direction. Sometimes it would just be, well, let's try it again, you know, and I liked him so much. I never resented me being told, let's do it again after 10 takes. There's various methods to being an actor, and some people get very into wanting to, you know, feel the moment to, to the extent that they can't do the work technically. And I look at the work a little bit sort of like um, it's a combination of both, really. Being able to put your mind into the emotions at the same time being very technically 
uh, at home with camera and sound and everything. It's part of your job. Look out, waterhole. Things are about to change. I find it difficult to tell which are the females and the males. They all seem relatively equal. And it took about another couple hundred thousand years to make that happen again, apparently. I'm from California, so I'm a little bit too liberal, I guess. After all, I'm from the left coast. I was born in Van Nuys, California, sort of like the movie star high school. And now in all his ebullience, he casts a stone in the air, his first weapon, first man weapon. And then we cut to a spaceship. There goes the bone. And it comes back a, in this case, an armed satellite. That is not the space station. That's an armed satellite. So it's a weapon-to-weapon -weapon cut.
Stanley uses various pieces of classical music throughout the film, and I think it was a great choice to, to go with music that, you know, will be around for hundreds of years, and, and the film will never be dated by the music of the moment, so to speak. So, again, uh, it's just Kubrick being a very unique human being with all the various facets and intelligence that went through his uh, pituitary. He was a very, very smart man. I think both Gary and I were aware that we were working with a genius. You know, I, I, I sensed that. Uh, he would invite us to his home on the odd, odd Sunday, you know, probably during the shooting, probably three or four times. He didn't do a lot of socializing. He would invite us to his home, uh, which was a palatial mansion in North London at that time. And um, Christina Kubrick, his wife, was a gracious hostess. And he often had such in really interesting guests along with us who were from uh, other walks of life, scientists, artists, painters, sculptors. all kinds of people. And what was fascinating was watching Stanley speak about their subject to them uh, like a colleague. I mean, he was as versed, or seemed as as versed in their specialty as he was in his own specialty, which was making films. His use of the Blue Danube, the first time I ever saw him use the Blue Danube, I mean, I guess he had used it various times, but that I personally saw was in Paz of Glory. And um, Kirk Douglas plays Colonel Dax, I believe, and he, um, he says that somebody fired on our own troops and he's going to report it to higher command or something, and then he dismisses himself at, at a gala ball, he's in a party, a ball, and the music is playing outside, and he's brought into a room just off the ballroom floor and being uh, queried by these two generals. And he opens the door to leave the room, and the Blue Danube comes pouring through the door, and I, I you know, I, we played classical music at our house, and when I was growing up, and I remember uh, saying, oh, the Blue Danube. Anyway, it's kind of Stanley's signature piece, I think, really. But it sure works beautifully in this sequence. I mean, it's quiet in space, and it's slow, docking is slow, everything is slow. I, I saw Neil Armstrong, I met him, and Buzz uh, Aldrin practicing at NASA in 1965. I saw them practicing docking, and uh, 
you know, all the pieces eventually came together some years later when I saw the movie and I saw how beautifully Stanley did the docking of the space station. I was doing a film in the Bahamas and uh, my agent got a call from CBS. They wanted to have a human interest fill time. So they had me fly down and I went to the studio and they, uh, Harry Reasoner, who was a very well-known newsman at uh, CBS at that time, interviewed the most recent actor to play an astronaut and one of the oldest, which was Buster Crabb, who was the original Flash Gordon, and uh, was an interview with the two of us. And suddenly, it, it was over, it was going to be recorded to be used, and suddenly the astronauts were coming out a lot earlier than they expected. So they rushed me into the control room, and who was sitting there? I didn't know he was there, Arthur C. Clarke. And I, I, I looked over at Arthur when Armstrong first came out and stepped onto the moon, and there were tears running down his cheeks. Here's a little political intrigue between Russia and, and the United States about to uh, unravel. But Stanley didn't get too crazy about that, knowing that one day things would be different, and of course they are. Your nationality and your full name. Surname first, Christian name, and initial. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. And voice identification, that's something that we already have on this planet. There's a minimalist approach to the architecture of, of that set. By the way, that was a fantastic set at Pinewood Studio. And it's a huge, great, big, long thing that was uh, above the ground. It was built um, you know, on framing, et cetera. And it was actually part of a curve to emulate the uh, station so that the perspectives would be proper at all times with camera. Stanley had been a uh, photographer for Look Magazine at the age of 16. Now, Look Magazine in those days was like Life Magazine. It was a very important magazine. And here he calls Earth, and I think the charge is a couple of dollars or something. Hello. Now this is Stanley's <laughs> little girl. This is Vivian. I'm still friendly with Vivian. I chat with her on rare occasion. Well, who's taking care of you? Rachel. Now speak to Rachel, please. Going to the bathroom. Are you coming to my party tomorrow? I'm sorry, sweetheart, but I can't. Why not? Well, you know, Daddy's traveling. Very sorry about Daddy's that. traveling. <laughs> Is he ever? I'm going to send you a very nice present, though. I'm sure that Stanley said to her, Is your back hurt or something? Well, won't you scratch it? You know, that was Stanley all the way. Anything he could do to create the environment. Stanley's attitude toward film is pretty interesting in that he, he, he just tries to make everything sort of very natural. And by doing that, he, he allows people to become sucked in to his story and his plots. It's a, I mean, everybody 
knows the secret of that, but I think he was almost like a master at that. And then he would intersperse that with very poignant lines from time to time, followed by unbelievably interesting imagery throughout his films. For me, to define what makes a good director from an actor's point of view is the environment, the emotional environment that he finds himself working in. Stanley created, from my point of view, a very safe atmosphere in which to work. Stanley was very low-key, very quiet-spoken. But you knew at every minute that you were dealing with a man. For me, it was probably the most prepared director I'd ever worked with. And someone who's that prepared can relax, in a sense. No, no, please. Oh, thank you. Would, uh, would you like a drink, Doctor? Oh, no, thank you. As a matter of fact, I haven't had breakfast yet. Someone's meeting me in the restaurant. I thought this was a real nice touch to have a couple of Russians intercept Haywood Floyd. When I first arrived there, they were shooting this scene, and I went out to the studio and just said hello to Stanley. I'd only met him once before. I didn't have an audition. He just contacted my agency and made the deal. And then my agent, I had sort of a wild reputation for being a crazy bastard. And my agent wanted Stanley to know me because I was, uh, even though I was kind of wild, I was kind of reasonably high IQ'd. I'd, I won a national art contest and, you know, got good grades in college and school when I wanted to. I never studied much. And my agent thought that I had, you know, other sensitivities that most people didn't know about. And uh, he wanted Stanley to meet me. So I flew to New York and met Stanley in the Oak Bar at the Plaza Hotel. And I sat down and I said, you know, I'm sorry about my agent wanted to have this meeting. I, I hope I, we didn't inconvenience you. You had to come out and, and sit here. And Stanley and I ended up talking baseball, I swear to God. And we covered a little bit of poker. And uh, Stanley was a great poker player and a chess master as well. And so uh, that kind of got us off on the right foot. Kubrick, his overall personality, his overall curious curiosity, I think is what made him such a great director. I mean, his high IQ certainly was, uh, you know, an asset to him, but it takes a various uh, type of things. That's why I don't think we'll have a lot of Kubricks in, in the history of cinema or there's that many lying in wait. There's a lot of people who admire him and everything, but, uh, you know, are they willing to, to pay the price? I mean, Kubrick just devoted his life to uh, research and cinema, and, I mean, he really never left his house much. He just constantly worked at, um, you know, at cinema and things that he uh, was interested in. He didn't waste a lot of time. Sorry, Dr. Smith's love, but uh, I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. I loved working with Stanley, and, uh, you know, I'm often asked, well, I understand he, he, he did a lot of takes. People, I've asked that a lot. Well, maybe Stanley, yeah, I just, we did quite a few takes. Uh, it didn't bother me, and most of the time it was for technical reasons. This was a very technical film. Stanley would, uh, would, would take maybe 50 Polaroid shots, testing the lighting for every single setup, uh, every time he set up for a new scene. 
It took hours and hours to light them. I mean, many more hours in between sequences than you normally have in a film. I mean, film is always about hurry up and wait, but more so with this film than any other film I've ever done. Pleasure meeting you all. Dr. Schmieslub? Uh, whatever the reasons... Gary and I have talked about the fact that, that we really uh, have had something rather unique in our... You know, I, we've all gone on and done other things and things that we're very proud of, but to have been remembered for this film, to be a part of this film, is um, nothing like it. It's like being a part of what has become part of the vocabulary of film. To have been a part of a film that, in a sense, established certain parts of the vocabulary of filmmaking. I mean, that Stanley was that important and that influential in the art of film that, uh, you know, he, he invented things that other people have used. I mean, this was... 2001 was really allowed such films as all the, the Star Wars films to be made. He paved the way for the big budget. Uh, well, it certainly was the first big budget, uh, first rank science fiction film made. And the first big budget science fiction films after 2001 were the Star Wars films. A lot of people are very confused about 2001. What did it mean, the apes and the monolith and all that? You know, the reality of it is it's it's a sci-fi story. I mean, there's sci-fi roots, really. I mean, it didn't really happen. But because the film was done and made so beautifully, a lot of people put huge stock into it. You know, was it really like this, et cetera, and so forth. It's just uh, a story. If I've been asked once, I've been asked hundreds of times, did you know when you were making 2001 that it was going to have this staying power that was going to be the kind of cult film that it is? And of course the answer is no, not in a million years. How, how does anyone ever know that? We knew we were in, a, in an important film for that year, an MGM film that was going to get a lot of attention because of Stanley Kubrick, but no way. Now this is a real interesting moment. What happened here is the camera, once she steps forward, she steps inside a little booth area, so to speak, and now walks up and away. That's interesting in that what it was is the camera was on an axis, and as she stepped forward onto another surface, so to speak, the camera twisted, and then here it's the reverse. In other words, the camera turned, the set never turned, just the camera. But the centrifuge where Kira and I spend our life inside space, that wheel turned. That was made by Vickers Aircraft in the north of England. I, I believe it weighed 60 ton. And it was about 50, 60, 70 feet high with cameras strapped all over the outside of it, 16 millimeter projectors, which were the readout screens. They weren't really television screens because it, it wouldn't show up on film properly. They're, they're not synchronized properly to do that. A lot of the special effects, which were in those days, of course, not computer generated, but everything you see on screen was done physically in one way or another, whether it was done chemically or mechanically. And this is Haywood Floyd going to land on the moon. 
and visit the excavation site where there's a, a second monolith planted. So those uh, alien people that move through the universe or move through the solar system or wherever they moved, <laughs> they planted another monolith, I guess with the idea that if man ever left Earth, the first place they'd inhabit would be the moon, and so they left a monolith there. And I guess, uh, you know, basically in the story, it, when man discovers a monolith on the moon and it starts to let out an incredible noise, it's telling the extraterrestrial forces that um, man has finally got it together to move off his little ball and go to the next little ball. So uh, as alien as this movie appeared to everybody, uh, one of the things I can tell you that was very poignant about the movie in general was I, having done the Star Trek pilot in 2001, I do various lectures and autograph shows around the world. I just came back from Australia where I was out there doing the same thing. And um, one of the things that both Keir DeLay and, and myself hear constantly at these shows is uh, men about uh, 55 years old, younger than us, some people maybe in 40s, they say, well, my father took me to see this movie and I was very young, but it altered my thinking and uh, I ended up you know, going into computers. That is an absolute constant. This movie influenced a massive, massive amount of people around the world, not just Americans. Even though the computer PC and all that came from California and et cetera, it was a universal. Everybody who saw this movie, the youth of the world, all reacted and wanted a computer of some kind or went into computers. And, and that is absolutely gospel. I'm not, you know, just telling tales out of school. That is an absolute constant. And I think the reason that they feel the way they do is because the movie was made with so much care and, and art, artistic realization or, I mean, none of this really exists, but it creates the the image and the overall ambient of being real. I mean, look at that shot as that ship is landing inside the space station on the moon. My God, it's beautiful. So obviously, uh, I'm very proud of this, my association with this movie. And when, I, when somebody at an autograph show says, you know, I didn't like that movie, it bored the hell out of me, and it was too long, and it would never end, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really dislike the person. I just know that it's somebody I'll probably never, you know, have much to say to. Unless they're very, very attractive female. One makes an exception for things like that. But a lot of people did not really like the movie. One of the most important film critics of, it, of the time was uh, Pauline Kael, and she hated it. There were a number of critics. I, mean, I know one was the Newsweek critic who panned it, and several months later said, I was wrong. You know how rare that is that they say we were wrong? Not often.
It's kind of interesting because when Haywood Floyd uh, comes up to talk about the situation, the discovery of the monolith on the earth, etc., I think it's kind of funny because he goes into a meeting room with various people of different nations and a photographer comes in and <laughs> shoots everybody. You'll see him use a rather large camera. And of course, the miniaturization of cameras is phenomenal. I was at the car show in Los Angeles a while back and I took photos with my cell phone. Many things have changed. It has a Pan Am logo. Pan Am no longer is in existence. And many things have not changed. I guess we are behind uh, in space exploration, but in some respects we're not in terms of, you know, cameras in the solar system and leaving the solar system, et cetera. But we'll never know very much about what's outside the galaxy other than telescopes. I mean, it's virtually impossible to get there. This is Hayward giving his little speech and, in effect, trying to think what cover his tracks best he can. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back with you. Well, first of all, I bring a personal message from Dr. Howell, who has asked me to convey his deepest appreciation to all of you for the many sacrifices you've had to make. And, of course, his uh, congratulations on your discovery which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. Now, uh, I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security in this matter. More specifically, your opposition to the cover story, created to give the impression there's an epidemic at the base. <laughs> I understand that uh, beyond it being a matter of principle, Many of you are troubled by the concern and anxiety this story of an epidemic might cause to your relatives and friends on Earth. Well, I uh, completely sympathize with your negative views. I found this cover story personally embarrassing myself. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. William Sylvester playing, uh, playing Floyd. I think William was actually an American who was living in Europe, working in the theater, et cetera. Or he might have been a Canadian. I think it was this scene and things like this that were sort of drawn out, setting, creating the stage, that made a lot of people not like the movie. Because I find that when I watch this, I, I tend to coast myself. Humans are very consistent in their behavioral practices. I mean, the thing that's never changed is all the young kids, what they do now is they have little space toys, but basically they're still killing, you know, bugs and stuff behind every building. Nothing has changed very much in, in our outlook except for the various members of the society that have the curiosity and the intelligence to rise above the average. And so I, I don't think that any kind of overall general cliche is ever going to apply. You know, I, that's just my opinion. I think it's going to be consistent until the world, uh, you know, destroys itself with nuclear activity, probably in the next 50 years, maybe next year. I don't know. It's certainly, you know, I'm a bit of a doomsday guy. I, I don't see any way out for all of this. 
because the human nature, uh, human beings are just too stupid to really comprehend the beauty of what we have here. I mean, in general. And, um, you know, it takes a few dingbats to set the whole thing off. So I don't see how we're going to be immune to that forever. But until that time, it's a wonderful situation, I must say that. There's some fantastic shots here of these rocket buses uh, as they're going out to the moon base Clavius, going across uh, some of the most beautiful sets ever made. And again, a lot of people didn't like the pace because of, of video games and MTV and all the fast, quick cutting uh, and you know, the lack of depth that is pretty much in our society, except for, again, the limited people who are interested in, in the detail and the technology. But for the most part, the average person is not really interested, I don't think. Oh, anybody hungry? You see, like that line, what have we got? Uh, you know, that's that's a kind of line that Stanley writes. I mean, he wrote most of this dialogue. What have we got? You know, I mean, that's the way people would really react. It's, yeah, you can have the uh, fake cheese mushroom sandwich there. And I think Floyd says later, he says, uh, you know, they're getting better at this. It's really a wonderful movie. I mean, if you take your time, I mean, you can't watch this movie when you're on the way to a ball game or a dinner or something. I mean, you gotta get a snowy, rainy day and sit back and really cruise on it. But there's a lot to see in it, and it's so beautifully made and so full of details. I, you know, you're, I, I don't know if they'll ever, truthfully, I don't think there'll ever be anything like this again. When we first found it, we thought it might be an outcrop of magnetic rock. I would imagine maybe one day there will be. There'll be somebody, some individual that comes along who has the various tools. I meet a lot of people who think they do have those tools. But um, I don't know, something interferes. Either their desire to be famous or rich or, you know, there's just, it's very hard to to understand how Kubrick was so devoted to the art of the cinema. I mean, he was just, you know, it was something, he had, that, that was his first love. I don't suppose you have any idea what the damn thing is, huh? <laughs> I wish the hell we did. No, the only thing we're sure of is it was buried four million years ago. Well, I must say, you guys have certainly come up with something. <laughs> 
Doug Trumbull was in charge of a lot of the model making and also Tony Masters, an Englishman. The models were a real collaboration of some awfully talented fellows. And they worked, uh, by the way, in these sci-fi shows that I do around the world, you know, where I do lectures on 2001 and do autographs, etc. Um, there's all kinds of models that people who have, uh, you know, with digital DVD, et cetera, stopped the film and measured things and made replicas. And uh, every once in a while, somebody brings a model around to show me. And it's, a, it's just uncanny. Because I remember seeing a lot of the models and they were all different sizes for different shots. In other words, you'd see one model that was like, you know, five feet long and another would be 10. And it depended on what that, what the design of the shot was and which model would be used. So we're very soon here about to move off the moon and, and start our, um, our trip to Jupiter. Now this particular set was at Pinewood Studio and I'm not positive, but like over at MGM where I did a sci-fi movie years ago called um, Earth 2, which was on the largest soundstage in Hollywood. I believe this is the largest soundstage in Europe at Pinewood Studio. And they literally uh, excavated the floor and really cut, you know, opened up the floor. They had to put it back and all, and they really excavated and dug all that out. And that's the actual, and then they put felt on all the walls of the soundstage. I mean, it was really something getting ready for this sequence right here. As Snoopy says, it was a dark night. But by now, because I've seen the movie in different countries with different audiences, and there's an intensity in the movie house that you can feel. And one of the things about 2001, it was always a mixed bag. There were people who were so absolutely engrossed that they were spellbound. And there were others who uh, were so bored by now that they really, you know, just didn't want to have anything. <laughs> they didn't want to be there. You know, they wanted to get out. And of course, there were no Starbucks much to speak of, but they wanted out of there and, and, and get some chocolate cake or something. But there were those who were just absolutely riveted. Incidentally, you might be interested, um, somebody told me that somewhere in this sequence that you can see a reflection for a moment of Stanley Kubrick in the visor, that he did the handheld. In fact, I think we just missed it. I'm not sure, but if you were to replay that sequence, 
there is something that vaguely looks like a reflection of somebody, and I've been told that that was Stanley. In fact, Stanley did the handheld camera in two sequences, this one and later on when I dismantled Hal. It's more exciting not to have something all tied up neatly in a bow for you at the end of it. So we're into a new direction. And now Gary Lockwood, myself, will appear before you running back when I didn't have any stomach. And as you can see, the first time you cut to space, it's not the same. It's a different model now. People oftentimes thought, that it cut to the spaceship when the ape threw the bone, but it wasn't. The centrifuge is out there on the round ball, and the rest of the ship are solar panels and radio communications and etc. And that was a huge, long, beautiful model. Uh, there were different ones of it. The selection of music here is interesting, isn't it? Well, there were a lot of uh, different, you know, stories about the music. I had somebody that I knew, and I had brought his name up, Stanley, and then I think he did do a soundtrack with someone else. I forgot who it was, but a very popular and very important uh, man. And I, I understand that when he sat down to see the movie, he didn't know that his soundtrack wasn't used. Yeah, there I am, boxing, running around the centrifuge. Very few people knew, who knew me in school, realized that I didn't have, very few of them realized I had this kind of capability to defy gravity. I was always sort of an arrogant pup, so a lot of people probably thought that I thought I could. What it is, is the camera is mounted on, I believe, a titanium mount that is just riding in the middle of the centrifuge. You can see a little bit of the crease here. See between the two halves? You see the two halves there? There's a seam down the middle below my feet. The camera is on a very thin mount.
And as it, now here I'm slightly up, so I'm kind of running downhill. I'm giving the appearance that I'm running on the bottom. There I'm slightly up the side of the centrifuge. A centrifuge is on the very bottom, it's so heavy that the camera, so when the camera is traveling with me, it's just a normal tracking shot. When the camera is on the titanium mount in a fixed position on the wheel, it appears as if I am indeed running around the ship. If you can imagine a giant Ferris wheel, except completely enclosed, instead of being able to see through a latticework, all the lights and so on that lit everything up in there were on the outside of this. Now here's a beautiful shot. Kier walks, he climbs down. As you see, the camera's in a fixed position. He walks away and he walks all the way around and the, and the wheel is slowly moving, walks all the way around to where I'm eating. This Ferris wheel was probably two or three stories high. I don't remember the exact height. And, um, and it could be separated. If you could imagine taking a, um, a yo-yo apart in the, and, and, and you, so that he could shoot angles. For some sequences, right near my foot, my right foot, about a foot toward the center, there is a, in, in the pattern in the floor, that actually is where it's separated. And, but sometimes for certain sequences, they would have to poke a camera up through that crack and close it, and we would have to turn on our, our own camera and then stand back, and they would begin to revolve the, uh, the centrifuge. Three weeks ago, the American... In that shot that you just saw, when Kier walks up to me, it takes, what, 20 seconds or 15 seconds? That was almost one week of work. That's how complicated this movie was because I'm strapped in and Stanley tells me to start eating and all the food kept falling out of the dish 60 feet to the floor below. And with such a pristine white set, uh, the day's work was, I mean, it took, day, it took an entire day to clean all this stuff out of the centrifuge. And it fell two or three times, and finally they gave me like some cereal, which I despise. They were Dr. Charles Hunter, Dr. Jack Kimball, and Dr. Victor Kaminsky. The theory was that we were chosen for this based on our careers having been watched even as far back as when we were in high school, and that we were deemed to have the right stuff, so to speak. We both had double doctorates and uh, in, in various scientific uh, disciplines. We were deemed to have very steady personalities and that what would drive the average man uh, bananas or an insane under pressure would only get a slight rise in blood pressure from us. So we were supposed to be very steady chaps in that, in that sense. Represent the survey team. And their efforts won't be utilized until we're approaching Jupiter. Dr. Poole, what's it like while you're in hibernation? Kubrick was the kind of fellow who would have the monitor that was beside me as I'm eating. He, he would make that as real as possible. And he wanted us to react to it. So it had been shot first. He tried to uh, get the voice of mission control was indeed an Air Force traffic control fellow who uh, they found, and he, he plays the voice of mission control. In machine intelligence. 
the HAL 9000 computer, which can reproduce the, some experts... You see, now, all these screens that you're looking at, they're not television screens. They are 16-millimeter projectors strapped onto the outside of the centrifuge. And they are all running. So, it, you know, it wasn't... Uh, it was, a, you know, inside it was quiet and reasonable, but outside... Outside, with all those machines running at one time, was quite noisy. So there's a lot of technical. I mean, you, you know, the fellows in the sound booth here, they'll tell you, it's not all that easy, you know, to, to blank out all that noise. The food that we are eating in this sequence, was actually developed by NASA. Fred Ordway, who was one of the uh, important advisors to Stanley on scientific matters, had a very important position with NASA before he came on board the film. So the fact they had about 40 corporations uh, uh, kind of pool the, the newest uh, information and technology that Stanley might be interested in for his films. Not in the slightest bit. I enjoy working with people. I have a stimulating relationship with Dr. Poole and Dr. Bowman. Originally, Stanley was playing with the idea of having a, a woman's voice for Hal, and he was going to call her Athena, and then he changed his mind about that. Then he thought about Martin Balsam, who was a very well-known actor at the time. People might remember him for his role in Psycho. He was the detective who was killed on the stairway. Then he decided, no, he had too much emotion in his voice and too much of a New York accent. So then he... Uh, decided to use a, a well-known British actor by the name of Nigel Davenport, who actually was on the set with us for the first couple of weeks. Then Stanley decided, no, it was too British. So he paid him off and uh, said, I'll worry about that in post-production. So he gave the task to his assistant director, Derek Cracknell, uh, who sounded like this. This is what I heard. Dive, dive. Better take a stress pill day, it's all like that. You know, it sounded a bit like, uh, you know, Michael Caine. <laughs> Cure can do his accent magnificently. I always found it rather humorous. What a name for an AD, right? Derek Cracknell, Crack the Whip AD. He was a lovely guy. Uh, here's an interesting thing. I'm sunbathing, and my mother and father come on the, uh, they come on and wish me a happy birthday. Now, this is interesting because different people played Hal, and whenever I was working, Stanley almost played Hal with me. Uh, different people played Hal with Keir, but uh, with me, it was always Stanley. And I was rather dry in my deliveries and whatnot, and and Stanley was sort of equally dry. <laughs> I used to say, which of which one of us is diving under the other, you know? You like a cake, dear? Looks great, doesn't it? Sorry, you can't join us. Yeah. Oh, I ran into Bob the other day. He said to be sure and wish you happy birthday. All my students made me promise. In this sequence, he's. It was interesting. I didn't do very much. I just looked at them, and had some sort of pensive. A uh, slightly mindless stare, you know, and uh, in a way, I, I almost felt, you know, the 
theoretically, I was trying to convey the idea that I, you know, that it was uh, it was cute and everything, but you know, I really wasn't interested. And so I have this, which I call the thousand-yard Vietnam stare, so to speak. And um, so Stanley, after it was over, he said, I, I want another take. And he knew that I didn't like a lot of takes. And so I, I was okay. I said, sure. They took forever to light this and get this ready. So uh, sure. He said, well, I said, by the way, do you want to fix anything? I mean, is there anything that you'd like me to do that I didn't do? And he said, no, I quite like the take. He said, uh, if you could, I want it exactly the same. And I said, no problem. Happy birthday, Frank. You know what struck me? I remember the very first time I saw the film, and I think it was this sequence that started my thinking about this and feeling this. There's something kind of melancholy about this whole sequence, something kind of so isolated. Of course, we are isolated. <laughs> but even, even between the crew members, most of the crew is in deep hibernation. I, I like this scene, the chess scene. Frank kind of goes, oh, yeah. Uh, Rook to king one. I'll tell you something else. Now, I don't know it's true. I'm not a, I'm not a big chess player by any means. But I have been told that, um, you know, you know uh, pool is checkmated here by Hal, that uh, real chess mavens uh, have said that, um, that there's a mistake regarding these moves and um, that Stanley, being a chess maven himself, in fact, Stanley used to be a chess hustler uh, in his very early years in Washington Square in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. Uh, purposely put this mistake in to see if anybody would pick up on it. I know it's true or not, but for you chess mavens who are watching it, uh, you can write a note into Warner Brothers and say, yeah, or nay. Good evening, Dave. How you doing, Hal? Everything's running smoothly, and you? Oh, not too bad. Have you been doing some more work? A few sketches. May I see them? Sure. That's a very nice rendering, Dave. I think you've improved a great deal. Can you hold it a bit closer? Sure. That's Dr. Hunter, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is an interesting scene. Cure's uh, showing his... Uh sketches to hell <laughs> i never forget this it's uh it's really interesting it's almost like he's almost toying with dave bowman you know he kind of looks at him and says hey they're really nice you know and again just ideas that stanley had you know who knows when these ideas came up to do these things but they were there just projecting my own concern about it i know i've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. I'm sure you'll agree there's some truth in what I say. Well, I don't know. That's a rather difficult question to answer. You don't mind talking about it, do you, Dave? Oh, not at all. Well, 
Certainly no one could have been unaware of the very strange stories floating around before we left. Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. For instance, the way all our preparations were kept under such tight security, and the melodramatic touch of putting doctors... I think Stanley intentionally only wanted us to understand on the most mundane level what, our, what the purpose of this voyage was that we were kept in the dark. We certainly didn't discuss, as far as I can remember, we didn't have any deep philosophical discussions about what the ultimate meaning of this film was that we were in. Uh, and I think it helped us to just be involved uh, in what we were supposed to know and therefore could react in a very realistic way when things began to go wrong. Is it still within operational limits right now? Yes and it will stay that way until it fails. Would you say we have a reliable 72 hours to failure? Yes, that's a completely reliable figure. Well, then I suppose we'll have to bring it in, but first I'd like to go over this with Frank and get on to mission control. Let me have the hard copy on it, please. This is interesting, how this was done. The camera is attached to a cylinder. There are two cylinders, but you can't see. There's a far cylinder, the part that's revolving, and the nearer cylinder, the one we just stepped off of. It was on a rheostat, so the moment we stepped over that lip, the foreground cylinder that the camera is attached to um, began to revolve only after we stepped through. The far cylinder that we're now stepping down through the hatch is actually not turning. It's stationary. It's the foreground that's turning. But when we first entered the shot, it was the reverse. The foreground was steady, and the background was turning. There's a perfect example of a, a physical special effect. Sorry, you fellows are having a bit of trouble. We are reviewing uh, telemetric information in our mission simulator and uh, will advise. Uh, Roger your plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo a 3-5 unit prior to failure.
the pod doors, huh? By the way, the construction of the miniatures, um, that was going on all through the shooting. That did begin in 1965. And after we finished, I remember they were, con they were still shooting. And in between the time we finished and the time the Dawn of Man sequence started, they were, um, they were continuing to build and work with the cameras, taking these shots of the terrain of the moon and so on. You saw me crawl in there, and I'm crawling into a, to a, to a complete set, to a complete pod. It could be taken apart for close-up and various angles. I remember one day go through a soundstage nearby, the one we were working in, and saw a, a huge table, a hu sort of like you know, these huge electric train sets that people put up with realistic villages and so on. Well, it was that kind of thing, only it was the surface of the moon. So I saw a little bit of that. You know, there were overlapping things that I saw. You know, I saw models, and, and I'd go into Stuart Freeborn, and he'd make us up, and, and I'd see copies of uh, the things that he was preparing for the film. That's it, that sort of thing I saw. We do have one moment that's um, kind of interesting where we're at the council talking to Hal, and uh, it led to a pretty in uh, interesting thing in the movie, uh, and that is that, um, you know, we've tested the A35 unit and not found anything wrong with it, and uh, Mission Control comes back with the message that it's pilot error or onboard, you know, and it's actually Hal gaming us you know, letting us think something's about to go when it's not. And um, in the story, it's very subtle, but I become a little bit upset with Hal and sort of get a little testy with him. It's very quiet, very low reaction. And, of course, he kills me not too long after that. But uh, on, on the day we were shooting that, we had gone through various shots and various circumstances, which don't appear ever in the movie, on uh, different things with us, you know, being upset with Hal. And uh, I remember one day Stanley looked at me and he said, 
And it was one of the few times I was ever uppity with Stanley, and I said, um, he said, Lockwood, you look like you're a little bit bored or something like this. And uh, I said, well, you know, I said, I'm a little bit, you know, bored, yeah. And, of course, he, he wrapped the set. I mean, that was it. I mean, he just turned to Derek and he said, that's it. Well, we stayed very fit, uh, you know, when we were making the movie. And so I went up to my room and I exercised and prepared to go on to London. And the studio was out in the country on the M1 in the north. And so uh, we, we'd exercise, shower, and, and head into the city at the end of the day. Well, it was like 1 or 2 o'clock. We had wrapped so early that day because Stanley, I guess, got pissed off at my comment. So I thought, well, Kubrick fires people. Maybe I'm going to get fired. But such is life. Uh, I'm a cowboy-type personality. And so I just, my attitude is, okay, well, whatever happens, happens. So Cracknell knocked on my door and told me to, he said, the gov wants to see you. And I said, oh, all right. So as I, I turned to Cracknell and I said, well, am I fired? And he said, I, I, I can't speak for Stanley, love. He says, you know, uh, but uh, he wants to see you in his room. And I had never been summoned to his dressing room. So um, I walk in, and it was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Stanley was sitting behind a little sort of makeshift bar, and in back of him was uh, literally uh, 500 long-playing albums. You know, you got to remember what time period it was. And so these are all these long-playing albums, these vinyl albums. And uh, he looks at me and says, Lockwood, could I make you a drink? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, you're Polish, right? He says, I've got a real nice vodka here. So I said, that, that's fine. You know, he pours me a vodka. He said, Lockwood, he said, do you, are you, uh, do you like music? I said, yes, I do. He said... So he pulls out um, a Polish composer, and he puts on, you know, like the Warsaw Concerto or some damn thing. And so I said, well, Stanley, look, let me just kind of cut to the chase here. Are you, am I fired or what? He said, well, not really, no. He says, I'm not going to fire you. You're doing a good job. He just said, you know, but you uh, apparently, you know, you, you feel that we're off base or something. And I said, well, it's not that. It's just that. For the last month or so, we've been doing all these things to make the computer paranoid, and I just feel, you know, that there's a better way to go. And, and, I, and I just somehow don't feel that it's up to the standard that we've had at this time. Well, that's pretty strong words for a punk California cowboy to be telling Kubrick and, and potentially Clark things of that nature. And so to cut to the chase, uh, what it really amounts to is he... Uh, he asked me to uh, go back to the city, and he said, if I ever have uh, any ideas, come up. I called him at 11 o'clock that night, or 10 o'clock that night, which was rather late, and I had come up with the idea that we would go into the space pod and that we would uh, go in there and we'd do all these various things, and then the computer would find out that we had been talking about disconnecting him, and that we could get all kinds of conversation out about time lag differential and all the various things, but we could do it as two actors in, a, in some sort of conversational scene because the best kind of exposition in any movie is either visual 
were conversational. Well, I, I thought the same thing. If we go to the space pod and we get um, sort of excommunicated from the normal activities of the ship, and then later Hal finds out what we're saying. And at that point, then Victor Linden said, well, he can read your lips. And so Kubrick then came up with this great idea because what we do is we go in the pod and we, uh, as we, as we've seen on screen, uh, we get inside there and say, you know, something about um, uh, rotate the pod, Hal. And so he rotates the pod and he rotates the pod around to where his eye is looking directly into the pod. And then Cure reaches over and disconnects Dave Bowman as Cure Delay, disconnects the main connections and we shout, rotate the pod and nothing happens. Well, the interesting thing is there, Hal's reading our lips and he chooses not to rotate the pod back. So that's just some of the little things in the film that only giant, studi stu studious, intelligent types have noticed in this movie. People who have seen it 50, 100 times, they will say things to me at autograph shows about these type things. I asked Kubrick about that one day. I said, you know, it's amazing in your movies how you're able to get so much, you know, sort of identifiable activity that people can feel congruent with, you know. He said, I have to tell you something. He said, you never know who's going to have the idea that triggers the other ideas that make things work. Uh, fine. Thanks very much. Oh, Frank, I'm having a bit of trouble with my transmitter and seat pod. I wonder if you'd come down and take a look at it with me. Yeah. See you later, huh? This is where... Gary and I first have our, an inkling that something is a little wrong. Well, I think, I think, I seem to remember Stanley talking about that, that what happens to the HAL on board as opposed to the other HAL on, back on Earth, is the conflict between the two computers over the, over this mission and over what he, what the computer is not supposed to be telling us, and that that, in a sense, creates a tension which drives them over the, you know, drives them over, over the bend, I mean, around, the, around the bend, I should say, use a British expression. Open the door, Hal. The only dialogue is, open the pod bay door, please, Hal, which is the line I'm most asked to repeat. This whole entering that room and going into, that was probably half a day. It depended on the lighting, Rotate pod, please, Hal. Stop pod rotation, please, Hal. This discussion we're about to have right now where Hal reads our lips, that's an interesting story. This is probably the longest bit of dialogue that we have in the whole film. I mean, there's no question about it. It is the longest bit of dialogue. What Stanley did was anticipating this several weeks before, because there was such t uh, long periods while they were just lighting, we had a lot of free time, we'd go into his office and we'd improvise on it and he'd record it. Then he'd send it to his secretary who would get it all down on paper. Then we'd get a new version that we had 
in a sense, improvised on, then we'd improvise on that. And it kept shrinking, because you wanted less dialogue, not more. You know, of course, though, he's right about the 9000 series having a perfect operational record. They do. Unfortunately, that sounds a little like famous last words. Yeah. Still, it was his idea to carry out the failure mode analysis, wasn't it? Hmm. Should certainly indicate his integrity and self-confidence. If he were wrong, it would be the surest way of proving it. It would be if he knew he was wrong. Hmm. Look, Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I sense something strange about him. Still, I can't think of a good reason not to put back the number one unit and carry on with a failure mode analysis. No, no, I agree about that. Well, let's get on with it. Okay. Well, look, Dave. Let's say we put the unit back and it doesn't fail, huh? That would pretty well wrap it up as far as Hal was concerned, wouldn't it? Well, we'd be in very serious trouble. We would, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. What the hell can we do? Well, we wouldn't have too many alternatives. I don't think we'd have any alternatives. There isn't a single aspect of ship operations that's not under his control. If he were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how we'd have any choice but disconnection. I'm afraid I agree with you. There'd be nothing else to do. It'd be tricky. Yeah. We'd have to cut his higher brain functions mm-hmm. without disturbing the purely automatic and regulatory systems. It's a perfect dialogue for the moment. And it's so quiet and so so very subtle. Those were beautiful uh, little pods. And they were, I think we had three of them. Two of them were just models, and then one had an interior, and that's the one we're in. That's not what I mean. Well, I'm not so sure what you think about it. This moment right here is pretty interesting, the reading our lips. People have asked what we were saying at that this moment, and I don't recall, but I am, but my memory, you know, I would imagine this was just, Probably the same dialogue you've just seen redone because it didn't matter since it was silent. That was the intermission break. And I have to tell you, that was a wonderful moment in the movie houses around the world because I saw the picture in various countries. And it kind of blew people's minds, uh, all kinds of stories about it. But there was always this strange ambiente in the movie house when the intermission came. And um, it was always kind of fun to walk out and hear the people, you know, again, about a, a 70% approval rating and about a 30% of type saying, I have no idea what the hell's going on in there. You know, that was a, that was a constant as well. And of course, this music would play when you'd go back to sit down waiting for the second half of the picture. And it was interesting uh, choice once again of this of this sound just sort of permeating in huge speakers around. The, it was seventy millimeter, and there weren't very many movie houses that played seventy millimeter. So in, in the ten or twelve locations in the world, but it was certainly a wonderful time period for us to uh, to travel around the world showing this film in different countries and. Uh, it got to me that John Lennon bought two tickets to 2001 every day, every performance for one year. 
And uh, if you wanted to see the film and you didn't have the financial power or whatever or something, apparently you could go to some office near Leicester Square where the picture stayed for one year. And you could, I guess, give someone a story or something and they'd give you the tickets. Now, if it's true, I can't verify it. It was certainly rumored to me by my British friends that this was the case. And I did meet John Lennon one time and he talked to me very ebulliently about 2001. He was a huge fan of the picture. I remember once Cassius Clay came to London to fight Henry Cooper and the odds were eight to one, I think, against Henry Cooper, the heavyweight champion of England. And Stanley, being a, a gambling man, quizzed me all about it. And I had been an athlete, and I even boxed a little bit at one time. And I was kind of good at it. And I, I said something to him. And uh, he said, well, don't you think Henry Cooper has a chance? And I said, he, he doesn't have a chance in hell. And so um, he bet on Henry Cooper. I tried to get him to, to give me some of the action on that, and he said no, that he didn't want to wager with an actor while he was making a film with him. And so I said, okay. But uh, I thought that was pretty easy money, and, and it turned out it was. If you notice the opening of the sequence, pod rising from behind the bulbous end of the discovery, and I always wondered, was that a repeat of the motif of the opening of the film? Well, this is uh, Frank Poole man manipulating his space pod in order to uh, remove the AE-35 or put back the AE-35 unit, if I recall. And, uh, and uh, soon, Hal is going to uh, take care of business. And as you can see uh, very shortly that he, uh, he does take care of business. <laughs> I'm descending here to the top of the ship in order to replace the unit. And of course that's on a huge sound stage and I'm being lowered by wire. Now here, the pod's turning. And uh, for those of you who have never seen 2001, you're about to watch uh, a high technology space murder here. and those arms and the lights, and it's like a marlin after his prey. That's what a marlin does, turns on all his lights. And now Frank is being swept away, so to speak. And uh, this is the end of Frank Poole. I think a thousand years later, they find his body. But uh, that's it for Frank. And the pod goes rolling off as well. A lot of the distant shots of us being uh, 
in EVA, which is extravehicular activity, when we're going, like for example, when I'm going out to change the, the part that seems to be going wrong. The close-ups of me doing the work were me, but the long shots were a stuntman hanging by wires. Did you ever call the track on? Yes. I don't know if Arthur ever in the subsequent books ever wrote about anyone finding the pod. Maybe he has. And I just haven't come across that bit of literature. Your Dave Bowman is uh, really the cavalry, uh, the one-man cavalry about to go out and, and get Frank. Cure does a really wonderful job once he retrieves the body because he, uh, he goes out and he has the body inside the arms of the pod, inside the jaws of the pod. And uh, later when Hal denies him entry into the ship and he says, open the pod bay doors, please, that becomes a very famous line that you hear, you know, selling cars or something. In contemporary literature, it's constant. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And uh, needless to say, he never opens them. So he releases Frank's body, and Frank again goes off into space, and he uses the tentacles and devices of the pod to open up the emergency airlock, and he lets himself in the ship. I'll anticipate the, the moment coming up when, how, when I finally force myself uh, into the ship through the emergency hatch. Uh, and I'm able to do that by pressing the, uh, the, the, the pod against that hatch. And there are some explosive bolts uh, in the rear door that will, in a sense, explode me into the ship. And you see me being sucked into the vacuum of space, or because, of course, it's an um, airlock. So there is, the, the pressure will only be equalized once that airlock door is, is closed, which I grab a handle and do. But for a moment, I am in a, a vacuum. And this was, this was researched. And it was, the scientists told Stanley that, yes, a human being, if he held his breath in a certain way, could last X amount of seconds in an airlock before, before, and survive it, as long as it wasn't more than 15 seconds or whatever, however long it is. Interesting, um, there was an earlier scene, just, I think it was after I go out and check the, the part, that, that, that's going wrong. Uh, and I was worried about it for weeks because it was such scientific gobbledygook. So I never memorized lines so hard in my life as that sequence. It's been, it was cut. But do you know, because of the way I worked on it, I can remember the lines to these day. And it went like very much like Mission Control. And I, I don't have a script in front of me. This is pure memory back from how many years ago? 1966. It went... Mission Control, this is X-Ray Delta-1. At 1920, onboard fault prediction center in our Niner triple zero computer showed Alpha Echo 35 unit as possible failure within 48 hours. Request check your in-ship system simulator. Also, 
confirm your approval, our plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo 3. Goes on like that. I still remember it. And it was never used in the film. In this sequence, of course, uh, there's no way that I can go into space physically and open that uh, emergency hatch because in my rush to save my colleague, I have forgotten my helmet, my space helmet behind, which at least would seem a little uncharacteristic for someone who uh, can't be thrown too easily emotionally. But that, there's a perfect example of uh, where I do lose it a little bit. The fact that this character, who is so steady, could forget his helmet. Some of the really wonderful moments that I remember about this picture after I'm no longer on the picture. My favorite moment is when Kier has blown himself into the airlock, through the airlock, has then put on a green helmet in order to get another helmet. By this time, I'd been in the character long enough, and my character would be someone who would take an awful lot to get a rise out of emotionally, uh, in terms of any panic. And this was a very thin line that we had to walk, because you couldn't just do it, you couldn't be casual, because this character's life is on the line when Hal won't let him back in. And um, so this is one of the instances that I mentioned earlier, where with the average person who's personality profile, not what ours was, would have been, would have lost it completely. And here you only see my character relatively losing it only a bit. Hal is killing off the um, other crew members who are in deep hibernation. And the, you can see the, the windows are beginning to show a kind of moisture appearing, which wasn't there before which shows that the atmosphere is changing within those capsules. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Well, here, 
Hal's not letting me back in. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? Al. 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 By the way, HAL was not one initial away from IBM. A lot of people think uh, that it is, and it wasn't. And they actually, I don't recall what the, fir what the first and last H and L stand for, but I know the, the A stands for algorithmic, and it was, uh, they were, they were computerese terms uh, of some sort. to, which I love, let my friend go into space.
having let Poole go, I'm on my way back to the Pod Bay door. I think that's the last shot of Frank right there. They didn't have to literally shoot through that porthole. The whole front of the pod was removed so they could get various angles. might be interested to know that is a wig that I'm wearing. That is not my own hair. Kubrick didn't want to have to worry about keeping my hair cut a certain length. The hatch was actually the ceiling. The camera is on the floor shooting straight up and I am head first two stories up so that when I'm propelled in, we used gravity and there is a cable in my crotch that goes through the hatch door and out to the side of the set, which in turn was woven into a rope and there was a platform, the top of which was parallel to the top of the set. And there was a circus roustabout who had heavy gloves on his hand. And the rope was measured in such a way that they tied knots at the place he was supposed to cinch it. What happened was that the roustabout let the rope run through his gloved hands full speed until he reached the first knot, which would be equivalent to my being about two feet from the lens. Then he jumped off the platform. Well, he was heavier than I was, and I went shooting toward the ceiling. Then when his feet hit the ground, he let go of the rope again, and I went plummeting back to the ground again, full speed. He grabbed another knot. So 
When you see me propelled, just imagine that I am waiting to dive headfirst and plummet two stories down toward the camera. There it is. That's the ceiling. And now he jumps off his platform. I go hurtling the other way. I grab the emergency hatch. And we only did that stunt once. Talk about having to put... I wouldn't have done that for any other director except for Stanley. I was to get yourself a stuntman, but they, they couldn't use a stuntman because I was being dropped toward the lens and my, my face would have ended up in camera. You couldn't have used someone else. For me, it was the most spectacular special effect that I was involved in. This is handheld. This Stanley is holding the camera on this whole sequence coming up. As you can see, it's very deftly handheld, which gives it a kind of immediacy and kind of a documentary feeling at the same, and gives it a lot of tension. I've had to grab, it's another color. It's just the odd, an extra helmet. This is all handheld. If you notice, there was no cut there. I went from the, all the way, Stanley's still holding it, and those were big, awkward Panavision cameras to handhold. He's still holding it. Turning his body as he films. Now this is no longer handheld. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. But I can assure you now, very confidently, that it's going to be all right again. I feel much better now. I really do. Look, Dave. I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. Now, this is, to me, one of the best parts of the movie. It's one of the most beautiful sets you'll ever see in your life. And Kier is hovering over the brain cells, and he's slowly disconnecting the, the cells. In other words, he's going to kill the hard drive. So it's an interesting thing in that here's a computer that is almost human-like, and he knows that he doesn't have any way to stop his own demise, and he knows he's about to die. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? I worked very hard with Stanley to come upon a, a what state emotionally that I am. And it's, it's uh, very ambivalent because, in a way, I'm, I'm murdering a colleague. Hal has been a colleague during this long version. You see me showing my artwork to Hal. So we actually have a personal relationship. I call this the Mice and Men sequence because he loves that big oaf that he has to shoot and sacrifice. And so... And you know how he tells him, Lenny, we're going to go out and, and we're going to buy the farm and we're going to raise rabbits. And I say, yeah, go ahead and sing. Sing for me, uh, 
Hal, you know, and he sings Daisy. I'm trying to kind of ease him into his death, in a sense. My mind is going. Some of the sequence, interestingly enough, was shot different ways. Sometimes I was upright and kind of moving my body in a spacey kind of way as if I'm in, well, in non-gravity where there's no because there would be no gravity in this area. And, and sometimes for these shots during these sequence, I was actually suspended upside down. I can feel it. There, I think, yes, I am being, I am upside down. This is being shot upside down to kind of give me that weightless. Good afternoon. I thought Kier really had the proper uh, emotion going for him. He, he, the look on his face, it's a very excellent moment from just an actor's point of view. I became operational at the age. Everyone knows who knows this film knows of Hal. You know, Hal is such a distinct, special character in this film. He only worked one day in the film. I think he says he worked nine hours, total of nine hours in the film. His is a wonderful performance. Douglas Raines is a Canadian actor. He who very seldom ever, I don't think I've ever even met him. He did sign a photo for me once that I still have. I have one piece of memorabilia from this movie, and it's the poster that's in the Smithsonian. I have a, a lithograph of it. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to I'm half crazy all for the love This film does show its age, and that is, today, the, the computer would not be this large. <laughs> it would be a laptop. <laughs> but it's much more dramatic having this room to take apart. A brain, in a sense. When we were selling the picture, traveling around the country, I was sort of damned by the media for, you know, being boastful about this movie because I thought it was very special. And a lot of people uh, really took me to task and, uh, you know, said Gary Lockwood came into Denver or into Houston or wherever in the hell I was acting and, uh, you know, really uppity about his movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and, and telling us it was one of the best films ever and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of people that were sort of resentful of my attitude toward this movie, but, um, you know, here I am. I've just come back from Australia where I was on tour with, a, uh, you know, doing autographs. I've been all over the world uh, doing this, and uh, I'm, I'm chatting today here about this DVD on 2001 that's coming out. So, uh, you know, I mean, the answer, the proof is in the pudding. I mean... The movie survived the test of time, so it surely must be one of the best movies ever made.
I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. One sort of trick that I learned about discussing and, and helping publicize this movie, I learned by accident in Houston. Um, I had read some reviews of some of my visits to other cities, and they were a, a tendency to, to point out how arrogant I was and how off-base I was because of this movie, and, and was it as great as I was boasting that it was going to be, and uh, things of this nature. And uh, I, I firmly believed what I was saying, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, I was taken a task by some people in the press. So when I got to Houston, Texas, the MGM field rep had set up interviews with the local papers and everything, and I refused to attend the meeting. And so the MGM field rep said, Lockwood, what, uh, what, what is wrong here? And I looked at the guy dead in the eye and I said, look, I'm tired of the press that we're getting. I'm talking openly about how I feel, and everybody is taking me to task, and it's pissing me off, so I'm going to do something. And I thought about it, and I invited the press to come in, telling everybody that I was ill from traveling. But during that, it would be one huge meeting. So I invited all the underground press and the college press, and I put on a huge, great meal and champagne and everything, and I had an open forum. Well, needless to say, the younger types were really into and formulating questions. You know, so how do you establish orbital velocity? Or And I, I was reasonably aware of some of these things. And I'd say, well, you know, you can't really show 17.5, but you can do, you know. And I was talking along these lines. And the younger people were coming out with the proper questions where the older people wanted to know if I ever met Doris Day. And, and because of the difference in the age or whatever, what I did later is I said to the MGM field group, I said, look, what you can do is you can go out and get the people and have them after the forum, you can have a half hour with each of these big wheels in each city. And every time we did that, we got way better press. It's just a little manipulation of the media. I don't remember in the screenplay the justification for it. I mean, why am I in the pod? Uh, you know, uh, you could, you could. Perhaps the decision was that um, that Hal, before he was put away by me, uh, had uh, somehow affected the running of the ship. I think, in my own mind, um, from this point onward, that the effect of what alien, whatever, whatever alien presence the monolith represents, and the monolith is nothing but an artifact of some sort from this, this alien intelligence that's probably as far distant, as far evolved beyond humankind as we would be to an ant on the ground, that, about that kind of distance. Would we not be gods to an ant if an ant could think? We're probably gods to dogs, for that matter. So I think that everything that happens in this sequence, that the effect of the, the intelligence, which I think was so clever of Stanley to never try to show. We never, we never see the alien. 
whether it's going to be some kind of bug-eyed monster. You know, nothing can be as kind of interesting as what our own imaginations come up with. And I've, I've always thought that in terms of where Bowman is with himself at this point, that he's in a sense, if this was a fairy tale, he would be under the spell of whatever huge forces out there. In a sense, I feel like my character's in some kind of spell. Oh, this is interesting. How I did this, the set was not shaking. I did this with my body. I tensed my body up, and the camera's that close. You tense your whole head up, and eventually you can make it sh yourself shake. And that's what I'm doing there, like an isometric head exercise. There isn't much on my face here, and I seem to vaguely remember that uh, that, that it was a longer sequence than what we're watching now, because obviously this is a special effect done chemically or however he did it. I'm not sure how it was done, except again, it was, this is not computer generated in any way. Uh, I didn't have to be here for this. This, if you notice, they just cut to my face every once in a while with these freeze frame views of me. That is my eyeball, by the way. That was an immense close up. When Stanley made this movie, he takes the time and creates a tremendous sense of reality by taking his time. And so there are a lot of people who don't like the movie because of things like this. But, you know, you're never going to see anything like this again with the significance that it carries with it from a 
fictional point of view. Some of these images here that you're about to see during this sort of Stargate sequence, a lot of these things were created by Douglas Trumbull. And he and I were sort of friendly, you know, because we're both, we're the only two Californians on the picture. And uh, so we used to eat lunch together once in a while. And there's a little irony here in that we find out that we both lived in Malibu and we lived on the same mountain you know, like one of these circuitous roads to get to our house. And we were both sort of, you know, a little California space cadet types. And I just thought, you know, that would be of some, uh, a humorous side, side avenue, side venue, whatever. When I'm um, going through the Stargate, uh, making that strange journey through time and space, uh, he played and that was like silent movie days. Of course, at, this, at that point, I was the only actor working with Stanley. Gary Lockwood's character had been killed off by, by Hal by that time. And uh, it was sort of like the days, silent movie days, where they would actually play live, live music for the actors to put them in the mood. And he played an excerpt. If anyone wanted to go out and get it and listen to it, uh, you'll, you'll see how beautifully it fit that sequence. He played uh, one of the movements from the uh, Antarctica Suite by Vaughn Williams. And there's a very mysterioso uh, movement there, and it absolutely put me in the mood for that. Most sci-fi movies really now are just cowboys and Indians in space. And instead of shooting Indians, we're shooting bugs. There is some strange terrain. And that was, they just made color, that was done from a helicopter, but they just made color changes. There's the, the, the mesa, those mesas in the background. You can see it just at the top of the screen out there in Arizona.
As far as Arthur C. Clarke is concerned, uh, Arthur was on the set from time to time, not constantly, but from time to time. And to what extent he and Stanley were combining their talents on the script once it had been written, I can't say. Uh, I'm sure that sometimes they talked about it, etc. I always had the feeling that Stanley had the final say on the screenplay. Uh, I really did. Gary and I really got along very well. In real life, we're very different personalities, very different. And in a way, I think we never, we were never a threat to each other. It wasn't like I was a little too much like him or he was a little too much like me. For some reason, it was yin and yang. We really fit together, even though we're very, very different in real life. And uh, we always liked each other almost immediately. And I think that really helped the film a lot. We're still very good friends. And uh, we don't, you know, we are really who we are. I grew up kind of in the rodeo as a kid, a football player. I won a national art contest. I was an English major in college. Uh, Kier, you know, grew up in New York City, a certain kind of background. Basically likes to work in the theater, which I don't care for at all. Whereas I'm kind of a bit of a villain on occasion, Kier's a, a real prince of a guy. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a guy and a guy that won't harm anyone or anything. He's a, a very decent human being. I, on the other hand, am more of a gambler and a manipulator. And, you know, whereas he's a, I guess, a more honorable human being than I. And so he was very pleasant to be around and, and a very giving guy to work with. We met for the first time uh, on this film. We did have a very good working relationship, and it wasn't just nonsense. I mean, we we're we're very good pals. We were, you know, seven to eight months together, and then Kier was another six weeks on his own, doing the disconnection. And we both realized, you know, what we did and what we made, and we're both very proud of it. Now this, interestingly enough, it's just subjectively from my point of view, this was the most remarkable 
set of all. I think as much because of the way it was lit from the floor. I, know, I mean, this was, this, I mean, every set for me was a bit like Disneyland. I mean, it was an extraordinary, they were extraordinary sets, every single one of them. But something about this set was special. my own interpretation of this is uh, I think uh, it's a combination again let's go back to my concept that this is that I'm under the spell of the higher intelligence that they are so sophisticated and uh, in advance scientifically over us that they have a facility the facility to what we would do if we had uh, uh, an animal in the woods and we wanted to make it think it was in its own environment, we'd kind of make a cage and put some branches in there to make it feel at home. You know, you go to the zoo, you see some caves they build for the polar bear, and we have an artificial pond for them to get cold in or wet. That's what we do for them. They're so sophisticated. They have the ability to go inside the human brain and play the brain as like a tape recorder and extract whatever it needs to They've gone inside my brain. Probably I walked through a museum some, and, and saw a room to show what Louis the, uh, you know, Louis the 16th uh, would have lived in. And they just arbitrarily saw habitat. So they removed what they saw as habitat for this creature and built this for me. I think this is an accelerated aging process, and it's just Stanley, and I thought it was, and I seem to remember actually making the, the suggestion to Stanley, and whether he thought of doing it on his own anyway, um, the fact that I think he might have taken my suggestion <laughs> kind of tickles me. I said, Stanley, why don't you, you don't see the younger version disappear. Here's an older version already. Now, you've seen me slightly older with wrinkles on my face inside the space helmet. All that happens is that the younger version just isn't there. Here he hears a noise. I've just been standing there in that room in my red spacesuit. He hears the older version of me, hears a noise, presumably made by that. See, he's not, I'm no longer there. I'm not in that bathroom. And the same will happen... This is the second aged version. The first aged version is when you see me with wrinkles inside this red space suit. This is the second version. And again, when I'm the, most, the oldest on the bed, reaching up toward the monolith, again, you will never cut back to this person. You will only see the older version. You will see where I knocked the glass on the floor I remember this was definitely my idea. I thought it was an interesting way to be in mid-motion, to suddenly hear something. Because each character, each of these versions of me, hear something off camera. 
and from that angle, as you'll see. There I go. I'm reaching toward it. And suddenly, in a way, in mid-motion, and I'm an older person, it takes me a bit longer than I... I hear something. What do I hear? I'm squinting my eyes, being an old mannequin. There I am. Now, that makeup that you're seeing in the oldest version in the bed, and by the way, the one in the, the me in the foreground will not be there, that took 12 hours. In the film 2010, it only took six hours. But that took 12 hours to apply. I think it's an amazing makeup. You see, the other me is gone. Fortunately, they did this in one day. This, this section was done in one day. Took a full day. Well, a long day because I had to get into that 12-hour makeup and then ready to shoot at 3 in the afternoon, probably. Well, I wasn't there for that. Or they, they, I don't know whether they superimposed that. That was not on the set anywhere that I remember seeing. You know, what's interesting, if you read the book, Stanley was never as specific about where the world was in terms of uh, world events at the time. Of course, at that time, uh, it was during the Cold War and the Russians were the other great force. And in the book, both powers, the United States and Russia, have nuclear weapons in constant orbit around the Earth. And this sort of Superman, this next evolution of mankind, which this represents, that I have been changed by the alien presence, nullifies all the nuclear weapons. Here's the thing about Kubrick. I knew his film so well that I knew this guy would be the coolest guy that I'd ever met. He was very quiet and very understated. And I had said to him, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you chose me. Later, I asked him one day why he chose me. And he's, here's what he said to me. He said these words. Well, you could do a lot without doing a lot. I remember the first week I was I guess a little in awe. I mean, here I was working with the man who'd blown me out of my seat some years before when I was in drama school. 
And I, I, he took me aside one day and he said, Kier, you're a wonderful, wonderful actor. And um, I just, I'm, I'm feeling a little badly that um, I'm not able to help you more. I mean, and, and he said, is there anything, in other words, he was letting me know that he loved in what I was doing, but he must have sensed I was a little in awe and, and really handled it, and handled it beautifully, and I was fine after that. As a professional actor, you live your life from project to project, and each project is unique and important to you at that moment. So it didn't, other than the fact that through the years people have recognized me from this iconic film, which is very satisfying, by the way, I mean, if you're, in general, only remembered for one thing. Uh, you know, I've been on Broadway and successful Broadway plays. I was in one that ran for three years, but if you add up all the audience, that's a, that's a fraction of the number of people that see any given film. Uh, but one could do a lot worse than if you're only remembered for one thing. Can you imagine? I mean, it's sort of like Orson Welles being remembered only for Citizen Kane. You know, he will go down in history for that. So it's very exciting, but I can't say that it had, you know, you just press on and, and you do your job as, as a professional. And uh, uh, there have been things I've done since 2001 that I'm extremely proud of, many things. Some I'm less proud of, but that was true even before I did 2001. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, that the whole, in a sense, way you look at actors is in the eye of the beholder much more than the actor. The actor is just a human being who's being himself going from moment to moment throughout his life. We premiered the movie in Washington, then the next night in New York. The crowds were not all that ebullient about the movie. I mean, it, it was really kind of like, we had 10 pages in Look Magazine and the whole world was waiting to see this film, but the wrong people came to the two premieres. The third night, we flew to California, and of course we flew out of New York rather early in the morning, straight to the coast where we changed clothes and then went to see the movie for the third night in a row. And I remember we were all sitting in the first class. We're flying to the coast, and I remember getting up and saying, I know it's, a little, it's been a little bit rough on how we've been received the last couple of nights in terms of the media, but I said, we're going to California today where it's not so uptight. It's not so East Coast stuffy. We're going to go to a wide open town where they make movies. And I said, tonight, we're going to be in a motion picture town and we're going to be with people who love this movie. Well, I can tell you that when we had the intermission in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and we were all out there uh, in the lobby for a few minutes, you know, during the intermission. I remember Warren Beatty walking by me and he looks at me and he said, you're lucky. And I knew what he meant. And that is that for the rest of my life, I, I'll be able to be proud about something I did as an actor. And that is one of them.